everyone, and welcome to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hello, everyone. We are back this month with a very exciting episode for you. In this episode, we're going to review some of the important new forms and form revisions that were released in June of this year. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it. So let's jump in and talk about our first new form we're going to be discussing, which is the Fair Appraisal Act Addendum, also known as form FAAA, Fair Appraisal Act Addendum. So you've almost certainly encountered this form by now because this addendum is attached to every contract for sale of real property. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not just an idea we had. This is a result of a new law that was passed at the end of last year and went into effect July 1st of this year, 2022, that requires the language contained in this addendum to be made a part of, and so in our case, attached via addendum to every contract for real property whenever property is sold in the state of California. And what this language is, what this addendum is doing, is basically giving information to the parties, most significantly in this case to the buyers, um, although actually to the sellers as well, it's going to be impacted by everybody, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, an appraisal is required to be unbiased, objective, and not influenced by improper or illegal considerations. Now that might sound obvious, but you very likely have seen news stories over the past couple of years, including some over just the past couple of weeks this summer, where uh, studies were done and sort of like testing was done and it was revealed that appraisers were giving wildly different values to property based on who they thought the residents of that property were, the owners of that property were. So they would appraise the property at one value and it would be obvious from the contents of the home photographs and things that it was a non-white family who lived there. And then they would change out all of the interior of the property, replace the family photographs with photographs of, for example, a white family and the appraisal would come back significantly higher which is a huge problem and hugely illegal, right? Right. So uh, California decided to try to take action to stop this practice. And it did a number of things with this law. There is now mandatory bias training for appraisers, for example. So, you know, the same way that uh, real estate licensees, realtors now have to take fair housing and implicit bias training, appraisers have to do the same thing. And the part of the law that's relevant to us today is that this advisory has to be included so that the parties, buyers and sellers both, are made aware of what these appraisal rules are. And on top of that, they are informed that if either the buyer or seller believes that the appraisal has been improperly done or influenced by any illegal considerations, then they are told how they can report that appraiser or appraisal um, how they can file a complaint with the Bureau of Real Estate Appraisers. They have, give a website, they give a phone number saying, you know, you have rights. Appraisers can't take illegal, you know, protected statuses into consideration. If you think that's happening, here's an action you can take. So this is now referenced in and bundled with all of our real estate purchase contracts and will be going forward. I think that's really good. I mean, so many people run into this issue. Some Uh are not aware that it's, you know, not something that's allowed. 
And some are, of course, we've heard lawsuits even occur Absolutely. from time to time. So yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I was saying, maybe you've seen it on the news, but not everybody has. And so this is a way to bring it to people's attention and just hopefully bring an end to this practice so that, you know, this sort of discriminatory behavior does not impact appraisals, does not impact transactions and give people actions they can take if they have concerns that they've been affected. Exactly. All right. So that's pretty much wraps up That's the FAA it for that yeah. form. Yeah. What do we have next? The next new form we're going to talk about is the CSPQ. It's our new commercial seller property questionnaire. Now, everyone is likely familiar with the traditional SPQ for residential sales. Well, this is the same, but for commercial sellers. Um, the form can be used with a commercial purchase agreement, CAR form CPA, or a residential income purchase agreement, which is CAR form RIPA, if five or more units are being sold. Now, I'm sure everyone is pretty familiar with the SPQ for residential sales, where sellers are able to disclose relevant and material information regarding the property. Now, in residential sales contracts, you'll find that the SPQ is required, generally where the TDS is required. Mm -hmm. And sellers must complete it. The CSPQ is not yet required by our contracts, um, neither the CPA or, or the RIPA for plus five units require this form, but it's still a really wonderful form to use for sellers, a great risk management tool for them as it serves a similar purpose in allowing them to disclose material information that which is important to buyers' decision to purchase the property, including information like that required in the actual agreement, and also information required by a city, or county, or state laws, and simply other conditions or defects or other features about the property that the seller knows will be material and important to a buyer's decision to purchase the property. So the last thing you want is your seller to have to deal with legal issues after closing on commercial property over things that he failed to disclose. So perhaps because he simply forgot or maybe didn't consider it relevant during the sales process, but the CSPQ can help sellers by bringing these questions to mind as he reads through and also maybe trigger other things that, you know, defects and so forth in the property that he's worked on, which you find sellers you know, enjoying the benefits of the SPQ in residential mm -hmm. sales for that reason. And the same is true here with the CSPQ for commercial sellers. Right. And and just to reiterate, like you're saying, it's not required yet in any of our commercial or residential income contracts. My completely uninformed guess is that it likely will be in the future, you know, or at least we'll have a checkbox mm -hmm. added for it. Those forms just haven't been updated since this disclosure was introduced this summer. But, you know, I, I think you said it exactly correct, which is all sellers have an obligation to disclose all the material facts that they know about the property. And this form is a vehicle for them to do that. And so what I would, what I would say to a seller client is, well, you know, is this form, you know, required by law? Do I have to fill out this form? Well, mm -hmm. no, but you are legally required to disclose all material facts. And this form is going to help you do that. And so really and minimize it's beneficial your risk, for sellers. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's beneficial to them. Yeah. 
It minimizes their risk of potential lawsuits. Failure to disclose is, you know, one of the top reasons that we see lawsuits after closes of escrow. So this is, it's a good thing for yeah. sellers because right now we have that exempt seller disclosure that that can and has been used in this, in this context before, but just like the SPQ, the commercial SPQ still contains those statutorily required disclosures that are in the exempt seller disclosure but has additional information. Some of the same questions from the regular SPQ, some that are more targeted to commercial or residential income properties, um, but whatever kind of property you, you know, you're selling, this is something that's really, I mean, it's gonna, it's great for buyers. It gives them more information, but it's really gonna protect sellers and limit their liability. That's exactly right. And I think that the fact that sellers don't consider, you know, the risk involved at times and not disclosing. I hear that all the time. Oh, do I really have to disclose this happened 10 years ago and mm -hmm. it's not a major issue. It's not really bothering anything now. And it comes up afterward and, you know, lawsuits occur. So I think this form really brings those issues to mind for a seller and makes them understand the importance and the relevance of certain issues. So it's a great risk management tool in that regard. I completely agree. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can move on to our next brand new form we're going to discuss, which is the Mixed Use Purchase Addendum, form MU-PA. So this is a form that has been a long time coming. It's been being asked for and requested for as long as I've been at CAR, which is some sort of form to use for a mixed use property. And by mixed use, we mean a property that has both residential and commercial units all on the same property. Mm -hmm. And for years, you know, agents have tried to had to cobble together sort of documents to deal with the residential portion or the commercial portion. Do you start with one and how do you add the other portion? Exactly. And so now we actually have a way to do that. And you'll notice I described this as the MU-PA. So this is part of that sort of new setup we have in the, the revised RPA where we have these, you know, dash PA forms instead of having so for example, this is not a standalone mixed-use purchase agreement, but that's because we don't really do, we're trying to limit how many standalone purchase agreements we have these days. Right. So just like we have a probate agreement purchase addendum or a you know tenant in common purchase addendum, things like that, this is the mixed-use purchase addendum. And so the idea is you're going to start, if you have a mixed-use property, you're going to start with the residential purchase agreement. So your base contract is the RPA. And the reason for that is just uh, kind of as we were just discussing with the commercial SPQ, the residential contract and, and residential transactions are the ones that have the strictest rules and the most burdensome documents and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you want to start with that to make sure all the residential requirements are covered. Then this addendum will allow you to address the commercial portion of the property. So you start with the residential purchase agreement and you add the mixed use purchase addendum to sort of convert it into this mixed use contract. So you have portions addressing the residential and commercial portions of the property. Right. So, and you can also include um, it with the residential income purchase agreement absolutely. if you have, you know, five Absolutely. Yep. So, so it that's works wonderfully with both. Great clarification. So this form can be used if there are one to four residential units on the property, you're going to start with the RPA and attach this. If there are five or more units, then you're going to start with the RIPA and attach this to address the commercial portions. And like you were saying, it works perfectly either way. Um, and to that point, on this addendum, you'll see there's a place to 
for the seller to indicate whether, well, it could be the buyer or seller, but most likely it's going to be the seller, mm -hmm. how many residential units, how many commercial units, and then provide a description of what the commercial units or space consist of. And then there's just additional information that really only applies to commercial spaces, commercial tenancies. You know, are there tenants in place? Are they vacant or not? Um, what is the fi financing status of the commercial portion? If it's anything different than the residential, are there going to be items included? Um, and then it just incorporates a lot of terms from our commercial property purchase agreement that wow. you don't see in a residential context. Language about surveys, permits, um, environmental studies, ADA compliance, mm -hmm. all of that. So now that's in there to cover your commercial portions. The RPA covers your residential and makes it a little bit clearer how you can handle one of these potentially tricky mixed use transactions. Exactly. And it's so much better than having one or the other of those agreements together with a stack of addenda to try exactly. to address all of these things. And so, yeah, I think this will be much easier for everyone. Agreed. All right. So that's about it for the mixed use. It is. Yeah. So the next new form we have is form D-E-D-A. And that is the Designated Electronic Delivery Address Amendment. That's a long name, but as many of you know, the revised CAR purchase agreements permit realtors to include their email addresses in the broker block of the final page of those agreements in a section called the Designated Electronic Delivery Address. Now, that enables realtors to send documents to the realtor on the other side of the transaction by email and consider them delivered and received upon clicking send, as long as they've sent it to that designated email address. You'll remember in the past, this was quite different. You had to call the other side after sending documents um, that were attached to emails to ensure that they'd received them because our documents are only considered received upon the actual receipt by the other agent. So, you know, you had to see if they'd opened their email that day, if they'd received it, actually gotten it. And that was particularly trying for agents when dealing with time sensitive documents like the notice to perform or demand to close. Mm -hmm where the date of receipt is day zero, and then you start counting days after that before the other party could take action based on those forms. So it's really wonderful to have this new method of determining when a document is actually received and delivered. Mm -hmm. Now, completing that section in the purchase agreement sets this up for the agents. But what happens if you either don't do that or one of the agents doesn't do that, or if you change your email address in the middle of a transaction? Well, that's where this new form comes in. The designated electronic delivery address amendment allows you to either add an email address to the transaction and you take advantage of the streamlined process or to change your email address if you've already put one in and now you want to change it to something else or add an additional email address to the transaction. Mm -hmm. So the new Designated Electronic Delivery Address Amendment form takes language directly from the CAR purchase agreements and permits you to do this after the transaction's already in progress. And right. that's pretty much it. It's a pretty much a simple, straightforward form. It's really short. You just put mm -hmm. your, address, your email address in and have everyone sign. So you're informing your buyer, your seller, and the other agent of this addition. Yeah. And this was simply created because 
we were getting a lot of questions, you know, when, when the buyer's agent writes up the offer, you know, they don't, they, they can't fill in the seller's portion for them or the you know, listing agent's portion for them. That has to be done mm-hmm. by the listing agent. And if you're countering and then maybe it doesn't get addressed right away. And so we're getting a lot of questions about, well, once we've accepted an offer and now we realize we want to add that or change it, you know, it, it seems weird or wrong to go back and make changes to the purchase agreement. And we agreed. Yeah. And so now, no, exactly. I mean, you'd have to have everyone form. initial it. It would just exactly. Be so, but like you said, this is just a streamlined way to say, okay, now that we're in contract, you know, here's how we're going to handle the, the designated electronic delivery and, and hopefully keep that process simple for everybody. Exactly. All right. So that's the DEDA. We have one new, one more, I should say, new form to talk about. Um, right. And this is one that also was created based basically on popular demand. Um, and one of, in my experience, one of the more common hotline questions we get, and this is the use of non-standard forms advisory, mm-hmm. CAR form NSF. So you've all probably been in the situation where you're in, you're in a transaction, could be representing either the buyer or the seller, and the other side sends over, you know, a stack of documents that they want your client to sign, and you notice that some or all of them are what we would call non-standard forms. They're not CAR forms or mm-hmm. your your local forms. They're something that are either created in-house by that other brokerage, you know, by mm-hmm. one of their attorneys or maybe by the other side's attorney, something along those lines. And we always get the question, well, what do I do with these forms? You know, do my do my clients have to sign them? Should my mm-hmm. client sign them? And really what what it boils down to is you know, even answering that question for clients is essentially giving legal advice. And so in order, we basically created a form to document exactly what you should be saying or communicating to your client if they receive any of these non-standard forms as part of a transaction. Mm -hmm. So basically letting them know that they're going to get a lot of documents as part of your transaction. Most of them are going to be from CAR or maybe your local association if applicable. And these are neutral you know, neutral organizations that are creating forms that are standard for everybody. They don't, you know, they're not picking sides between buyer and seller. These are forms that are just standard. Everybody uses, relies on them for their transactions. And then this advisory explains why that's a good thing. Makes sense. Then it warns about non-standard forms. So again, like I said, either created by the brokerage or maybe another attorney on the other side. And this this advisory warns your client of sort of the risk of signing a non-standard form and specifically warns them of what they should be looking out for. Cause they might think, Oh, what's the harm, but the kinds of sort of traps that could be waiting in non-standard forms is asking for the client to waive any of their rights or modifying terms of the contract, waiving contingencies, you know, creating an automatic or passive removal of contingencies, that's very dangerous from a buyer's mm-hmm. perspective. Or Could even a, just a release, a total release of all liability. Absolutely. And all kinds of things. Liability releases, yeah. you know, releasing or making it, trying to make a deposit non-refundable. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of tricky aggressive clauses that could be lurking in these non-standard forms. And they start out so innocent. A lot of times they'll start out with language that mimics language in the standard forms, disclosures about the area, et cetera, et cetera. But as you read on, suddenly it's talking about, like you said, automatic removal of contingencies or something. So you have to be very careful. 
Right. And, and the, the most important thing for an agent or broker to take away from this form is that it is advising your clients in writing about the risk of signing these forms, but also letting them know that you, their real estate licensee, agent or broker cannot advise them on the contents of these forms because if they're not standard forms, then you'd be giving legal advice of this document you've never seen before. So it's advising clients to consult a qualified real estate attorney before deciding whether or not they want to sign those forms. Um, and if they don't do that, they're warned that they're acting against the advice of their broker. So just a really important risk management form. If you get these sort of requests or documents in your transaction, pull this up, get it to your client and let your client make some informed decisions about how they want to proceed. Exactly. And like you said, this is so common. We get this question yeah. so often. All this the time. Form really going to be helpful, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's it for the new forms we're going to go over in this podcast. And yes. we're going to move on to some revisions that have been made, some of to our yeah. forms that were already in publication. So these are... And so this should be pretty quick. There weren't too many really no. significant revisions, just a couple of little things here and there we want to highlight. Exactly. So the first one we're going to look at is the SMCO, the Seller Multiple Counteroffer. So I'm sure most of you are very familiar with this form, and um, it's commonly used by listing agents to allow sellers to send counteroffers to more than one buyer without the risk, the risk of selling the property twice. Um, the key Important. is that a, a seller at all times while using this document retains the final right of acceptance. And therefore, the seller controls whether a binding agreement is created regardless of how many multiple counteroffers they send out have been made or have been responded to. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much how it works. And just to give a little more information to those of you who don't use this form too often, the way it works is that a seller completes a multiple counteroffer and signs under paragraph five in that agreement. And the form is then delivered to the buyer. The buyer accepts he might counter or whatnot, but let's just say to make this simple, the buyer accepts that offer in paragraph seven saying, okay, I agree to all these counteroffer terms and the underlying agreement and let's go. He sends it back to the seller. However, that is not a true acceptance. Even though you have two signatures, the form makes it clear that the seller has to sign in paragraph eight by the terms of that SMCO before there will be a binding agreement. And until he resigns under that paragraph, you really do not have a contract between the parties. So the revision to this form works largely the same way, but it expanded paragraph eight to include an election for the seller to put a buyer accepted multiple counteroffer in backup position. So you mm -hmm. sent your counter out to the buyer, the buyer sends it back accepting your counter, and now you can send it back, signing paragraph eight, in the alternate election, it's actually 8B, there's A and B. A allows you to just accept. B says, I accept it, but by putting this buyer in backup position. Mm -hmm. So that's really wonderful. You're still going to need to use our traditional backup offer addendum, which is form BUO. The parties mm -hmm. would complete it. So the seller should complete that and send it back with the paragraph eight uh, signed in the alternative B portion. Now, when he sends those two forms back, this will obviously have to be agreed upon by the buyer saying, yes, okay, I'll be in backup position. 
So he would sign, there's a space for the buyer to countersign under that on the actual SMCO saying, yes, okay, I accept being in backup position. And of course, he'd sign the BUO at that time. Mm -hmm. So you actually could be in contract with a buyer and at the same time, put a buyer in backup in a backup position mm-hmm. through this multiple seller counteroffer process. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just made that process a little easier for agents to do. Kind of took out a extra step so you don't have to sort of re-counter them on a separate form. Exactly. Because um, it makes sense if you're in if you have multiple offers that you're countering, you know, when you accept one, it would make logical sense. You might want to keep at least one of the others, if not more than one, in a backup position. So right. But it you just, might want to, you might, you could have yeah. back a position one, two, three, Absolutely. as many buyers as want to do many, it. As many as you yeah. wanted. And so this way you could just do that on this form without having to generate new counter offers. Right. Just don't forget to include that form BUO. You gotta use the sounds, BUO. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of back and forth, but in reality, the form contains really clear instructions on how to do it. It's really easy to follow. So you'll be able to do this quite easily. Absolutely. Right. That's it for the SMCO changes. All right. So- Another form with a minor but significant revision uh, is our independent contractor agreement. And this is actually sort of, it's sort of a new form as well as the revised form. We'll give you a little history on the independent contractor agreement. That's the form that brokers have with their associate licensees, salespeople or broker associates who work for them. And it lays out the rules of working for the broker and commission splits and other obligations and basically everything that governs the relationship between a broker and anyone who works under them as an associate licensee, it's all in the independent contractor agreement. And we had this form for a very long time. And then a few years ago, it was split into two. We had some request to create a version that had an arbitration clause. And so we had two versions of the ICA for a few years, one with binding arbitration and one without. And then finally this year, those forms were reintegrated. So we no longer have the ICA-NA or BA. We're back to just having form ICA, independent contractor agreement, with a now optional arbitration clause. Just like you're used to seeing in the purchase agreement, there's an arbitration clause that only applies if the associate licensee, the person who's joining up to work for this broker, initials to agree to be bound by arbitration. So if the parties want to have arbitration govern any govern any potential future disputes the associate licensee will initial that paragraph if not they'll just skip it and it'll just be a regular independent contractor agreement without that binding arbitration clause well, and then I one, think that made it a lot easier i mean you just uh, need one form you grab it you don't have to go right. through wondering am i getting yeah. the right one what's this you know. exactly and just have it in there as an option if the parties want it and if they don't they don't And there's only one other change in the independent contractor agreement also added um, due to sort of recent developments and requests. Um, Many of you may have sort of heard about issues relating to ADA website compliance, and you might have, you know, read news stories or seen alerts, or maybe even gotten letters or phone calls yourselves from people with complaints about, you know, whether or not you or your company's website, you know, meets ADA accessibility requirements. Um, there is now a section of the independent contractor agreement that makes it clear that if the associate licensee maintains their own website, they are responsible for making sure that website is in compliance mm-hmm. with all laws, including ADA compliance. So just, you know, some companies, they there's just a company website, but if, if the associate licensee manages their own website directly, this form just makes it clear that they need to make sure they're complying 
with all of those laws um, if that's something they're going to be doing. Mm. And that's it for the independent contractor agreement. All right. Then that form that was revised is the Fair Housing and Discrimination Advisory, which is form FHDA. Now, this form had two really simple changes. Um, First off, the form was modified to add genetic information to the protected class categories listed in paragraph four. Um, Genetic information that's connected to personal identifiers is used in various contexts, both health-related and non-health-related. And the information can be really sensitive because it may have implications for the current and future health of individuals and their family members. So it is something that people have wanted to have, you know, as a protected class for some time, and it has been added. And so our form was updated to include that in the classes and category section. Mm -hmm. So this information is now listed among those and both federal and state law or one or the other will forbid and prohibit discrimination against persons based on those factors. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And the other change on this form was something Jana spoke about earlier. The form was revised to include appraisers to the list of housing and financial providers that are required to comply with the fair housing rules, which we spoke about earlier and we know now why. And that's very important that they comply with these rules. Other providers, as you may or may not know, include realtors, sellers, landlords, property managers, and others. You know, all of these people that deal with providing housing and or financial services, but now specifically includes appraisers that must comply with fair housing rules and the course and scope of their duties. And really, that's it for the Fair Housing and Discrimination Advisory Form FHDA. All right. Okay. So the next revised form we're going to talk about is the a very minor tweak to the request for repair and the seller response on <laughs> same language on these forms. Um, but a minor tweak to the request for repair, basically trying to clarify some of the nuances of when you are negotiating out the final response. When so. When a buyer requests repairs, the seller, you know, often is going to respond and they, the seller may agree to all of buyer's requests or a part of buyer's requests. And either way, the seller probably is going to want the buyer to remove certain contingencies in return. And so there was just some changes made to the response section to make it clear that you know, no matter what, if the seller is agreeing to the buyer's requests and the parties are going to move forward on that basis, automatically the buyer is removing their investigation contingency. So physical inspection, investigation, that whole contingency is being lifted if the seller agrees to the buyer's requests. And that makes sense, right? The buyer, the seller doesn't want to agree to what the buyer asked for, start spending money on, you know, getting a termite clearance or having other repairs done only for the buyer to a week later say, you know, actually, I'm still not satisfied with the condition of the property, canceling based on my investigation contingency. So there has to be a little give and take for the seller to say, I'll do what you're asking, but you have to agree that that's going to satisfy you and the investigation contingency is going to be lifted. So that's going to be the default. But the seller might want the buyer to remove more or or different contingencies as well. They might want to say, if we're going to be doing this, we want you to remove 
all of your remaining contingencies because, you know, whether it's loan or appraisal or title or anything else, we still don't want to be in that position of spending money on the repairs you asked for only to have you cancel on us further down the line. Exactly. So now it's just very clear that the investigation contingency is removed all of the time. Um, and there's a second line to say, or buyer can remove the contingencies identified on an attached CR form. And so the seller can set that up, ask for whatever contingencies they want and say, buyer, our agreement to you is only binding if you remove all of these contingencies. And then there's also just been new subtitles added. So it's very clear on the seller agreement. It, it basically says all or partial, and then has a space to note any additional conditions of the seller's agreement. So mm-hmm. just trying to make it a little bit easier for the parties to navigate this whole, you know, re- uh, repair requesting process, which can be a little bit tricky. Yeah, it can with all the back and forth going on. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it for the RR form. Excellent. All right. So another form that was revised is our form CC, cancellation of contract form. And I'm sure most of you run into this form from time to time when canceling contracts. Now, the top of the form CC cancels the contract, the actual purchase agreement. The bottom of the form cancels the escrow and allows the parties to determine how the deposit is to be distributed to the buyer, to the seller, to both, etc. Well, the two modifications to this form deal with the bottom of the form, the cancellation of the escrow. First, paragraph 2C2 was modified to reflect that the 3% cap on liquidated damages only applies if the property is residential with one to four units, one of which the buyer intends to occupy. Otherwise, the 3% cap does not apply. Second, paragraph 2C4 was added to address the situation where escrow needs to be canceled, but no deposit has been made. This occurs usually when the buyer neglects to put a deposit in at the beginning of the transaction, and the seller's sort of just stuck there waiting for him to make a deposit. He wants to cancel the escrow out, but there was in the past no real election for him to you know, make that choice on the form. So now you can have that as a choice when the seller wants to go ahead and cancel the contract when no deposit has been made. Now, of course, you're still going to have to do your notice to perform to the buyer to get his deposit in and you know, wait the required two days. If he doesn't, you can fill out form CC as usual. And at the bottom, just choose that no deposit has been made. And that's really all of the changes that have been made to this form. All right. So the last revised form I'm going to talk about is a pretty hefty one, but we're not going to go into extreme detail here. This is uh, a form that I could spend an hour going over the revisions of, and uh, we've already spent enough time today talking about forms revisions, but I do want to make you aware that yes, everyone's new favorite form, the fire hardening and defensible space disclosure and addendum, the FHDS form was in fact revised again, um, you know, back in July, this past summer, really based on feedback that we got from you, from our members after the first year of having this form out in the field and your transactions, we took some feedback on ways we thought we could try to make it a little bit easier to use. Um, it's not going to be easy because it's not an easy law. Uh, so the form is sort of our best attempt at a way to help you navigate and help your clients navigate this new legal requirement um, in 
the most straightforward way that is possible considering the convoluted law we're dealing with. So I'll say right now, if you want a really deep dive on the revised form, what it looks like, how it works, we do have a dedicated webinar to it that came out, I believe at the end of June. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's just our regular webinar page, car.org slash risk management slash live. Um, but I'll put a link to it if you really want to go through and sort of have a visual step-by-step walkthrough of what the revised FHDS form looks like. But let me just tell you what the significant like conceptual changes were. So the first thing is, and if you remember one thing that I tell you about the revised FHDS form, this is the main takeaway. All of the advisory language that we had in there, that you could sort of use this form as an advisory, even if it wasn't legally required, you know, there was a way to say, you know, this form's not in a fire zone. It's being provided as an advisory. Here's a bunch of advisory language. That was all taken out. Um, it was just getting too confusing and there was too much legally required language in there that we wanted to take out everything that wasn't legally required. Yeah. That has been moved to a separate already existing form, the Wildfire Disaster Advisory, form WFDA. So if you want to have an advisory for your clients in your transactions about wildfire-related issues, we've got you covered. That's what the WFDA, Wildfire Disaster Advisory Form, that's what that is for. The FHDS now is only intended to be used when it is legally required. Required, yeah. So only for properties that are in those high or very high fire hazard severity zones. Because we're still, I'm still getting calls from people, I know we all are, where sort of people are saying, oh, you know, my office or the other office, you know, they say we have to have this form, even though we're not in a fire zone. Don't include it. Oh, only use this form. If it's a residential one to four unit property subject to the TDS law in a high or very high fire hazard severity zone. So that's sort of the most like significant usage change to this form. And I think that's great. And mm-hmm. you can advise them, hey, we have the WFA for that. If mm-hmm. you know, they're insisting on getting some right. if they, disclosure. Yeah, they yeah. want I'm all for more information, more advisories. That's always a good thing. But just WFDA, Wildfire Disaster Advisory, that's the way to do it. So a couple of other changes to be aware of. Just the it was the formatting was redone. So paragraph one just explains the applicability and walks you through when the form is required and should be used. Paragraph two deals with the fire hardening portion. So not defensible space, not inspections, none of that just the portion asking about uh, fire hardening vulnerabilities um, or missing retrofits on the property. And that section has been reworded. So it now matches that familiar SPQ TDS format. So it asks, seller, are you aware of any of these vulnerabilities? Are there wood shake or shingle roofs? Are there single pane windows? That sort of thing. So that way the seller, if they're not aware, they can say no. Or if they do know that those vulnerabilities exist on their property, they can say yes makes the disclosure process a little bit more intuitive for them. And then the final change, of course, was made to section three, which is the defensible space disclosure and addendum portion. And it's basically been broken down into three separate sections. Section 3A is asking whether or not the property is located in an area with a local vegetation management or defensible space ordinance. And keep in mind, this is not a seller awareness question. This is requiring the seller to affirmatively state the property is or is not subject to a local ordinance relating to defensible space. If the seller doesn't know, 
that means they need to find out. And the best way to find out is by contacting the local fire department or fire district. Almost always their website will have information about local ordinances and defensible space compliance. If you can't tell from looking at the fire department website, a phone call to the fire department is the best way to get to the bottom of that question. Uh, the second section, 3B, asks the seller to now, based on their knowledge, say whether or not the property is currently in compliance with the defensible space law. And the default, if you don't check anything, is just stating that seller is unaware. The default is that seller has no knowledge. They do not know whether or not the property is in compliance. But if the, if the seller has had an inspection and they happen to know one way or the other, then they can check one of those options. Either property is in compliance, here's my proof, or property is not in compliance and you know here's the document that tells you it's not in compliance. So all of those options are addressed. And then finally, the buyer and seller agreement about who is going to be responsible for compliance with defensible space. Obviously, if the seller's already in compliance, you know, they can state that in this section. Otherwise, again, it's going to default to being a buyer responsibility, whether the buyer's um, going to be complying with the state law or the local ordinance, then that'll be indicated there. If you're in one of those rare areas where there is a point of sale requirement that the seller has to take care of it, this is the place you're going to indicate that. Or it could be negotiated. You know, with the market we've had over the past year plus, haven't seen a lot of scenarios where buyers are demanding seller bring the property into defensible space compliance, but it is negotiable. So this is where that could be negotiated and the buyer could ask the seller to do it or the seller could say, assuming there's no local law requiring otherwise, the seller could say, buyer, you're going to be responsible after closing. Right. And then the last thing I want to note here is there is a sort of hidden new form that goes along with the revised FHDS, which is the Defensible Space Decision Tree. That is a totally optional form that comes attached that acts as an additional explainer. So I personally think the revised FHDS form does a good job of walking the parties through. If you sort of just read through it line by line, I think it does direct the parties on how to fill it out. But if your client looks at that and says, I still don't know what I'm doing, you can direct them to the defensible space decision tree that asks them some direct questions and then tells them, if you answered yes, mark this portion of the form. If you answered no, mark this portion of the form. So that's just an additional tool available to try to help, again, bring some clarity to this very right. confusing law. Exactly. And the form the form can be a little confusing to people. So I think that's absolutely. Really and that's it for the FHDS. And like I said, if you want even a more deep dive, check out our legal live webinar from over the summer. Um, and Neil Kalen and, and Justin Murakawa walk you all through it. And we even have one of our zip form guys there sort of showing you how it can be worked to be filled out in the forms program itself. So I recommend that if you want more information. All right. So the last form we're going to talk about today is the SIP, the seller license to remain in possession. And this form was also um, revised slightly. <laughs> and we'll go over that. This form, as many of you know, is used by sellers that want to remain in possession of their properties after the close of escrow for up to 29 days. So whether your seller needs the home for one day or for 29 days or anything in between, it's important to document that using this form. The form sets out the terms and conditions under which the seller may remain in the home and permits the parties to agree on things like the actual length of the term, the payment, deposit, and other details surrounding the seller's stay. 
But what happens if the seller stays more than the 29 days permitted when using this form? Well, our form didn't address that, but it has been revised to address that in the opening paragraph. The language was added that warns the buyer that if the possession exceeds the 29-day recommended limit, an attorney should be consulted because a landlord-tenant relationship could be established unwittingly by the parties, merely by them staying over the 29-day period. And that means various laws would automatically come into play that would impact the rights and obligations of both the buyer and seller who become essentially landlord and tenant after that 29-day period. Um, in addition to that, the form was modified in paragraph five of that form to prohibit a buyer from moving personal property onto the uh, premises during the seller's possession without the seller's consent. Now, I know, Jana, you've probably gotten this question a lot. Can mm-hmm. I move stuff in? I own this property now. Why can't I take my stuff and put it into the property? Right. And I mean, I've gotten that question so many times. So mm-hmm. the thing is, though, <clears throat> that this has caused a lot of problems and a lot of problems for realtors because, you know, it's the two realtors that are going back and forth mm-hmm. with the buyer's requests and the seller's usual refusal to do that. So now the SIP does address this. What it essentially does is allows the parties to agree ahead of time that the buyer will not be moving anything onto the property until the seller vacates, unless they have agreement to do so ahead of time. And and to be clear, this really was always the rule. Um, Mm -hmm. It just kind of went without saying, and but apparently. Uh, going without saying was not good enough because, like you said, very <laughs> no. common question. And I think, understandably, from buyers who, you know, pres- have never been landlords in their lives who just think, yeah, I own this property. I'm going to go in there, bring stuff in. And sort of saying, no, when, you, when you're renting it out, even for a short time, you have some limitations on, on how you can use the property. But right. it does say, like you said, without prior written consent. So the parties can absolutely agree that the buyers are going to move stuff in. They just have to negotiate for that in advance. Exactly. If they want to store something in the garage or whatnot, we don't recommend that because mm-hmm. that, you know, can bring up yeah, that's different insurance. issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, insurance and liability and problems. Issues. And what if something breaks? And oh, yeah. So we don't highly recommend they do that, but they can agree to do it if they want to. Mm-hmm. So, and that's it for the SIP revisions and actually for all of the revisions and new forms yeah. we're going to discuss on this podcast. We did it. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it and are a little more informed about the June new form releases and revisions. And thanks as always to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed all of our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282. Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturdays, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the Risk Management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. 
All right. We'll talk to you next month. See you next time.